0: This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Diversity, equity, and inclusion, or DEI, those three words and that acronym have been uttered a lot lately. But there's an important distinction that you don't hear about as often intentional inclusivity versus performative inclusivity. Author Ruchika Tolshian's new book, Inclusion on Purpose, provides thoughtful insight on improving workspaces on purpose. She joins us now. Welcome to Reset, Ruchika.
1: Thank you so much, Sasha. So excited to be here.
0: Ruchika, you're a woman of color, and you are Mm -hmm. passionate about other women of color, specifically advocating for them at work. What is it that got you invested in this in the first place?
1: Yeah, great question, Sasha. What we started is especially, I've been, I've been doing diversity, equity, and inclusion consulting um, and, and you know, advising around this for close to a decade now. And what I started noticing is a lot of the conversation in corporations around DEI, as you said, was very much invested around gender equity and gender progress for white women. And so I really wanted to center women of color because what I found is sometimes in a lot of these initiatives, focused on gender equality just for women, um, often women of color were being left out and, and sometimes even being harmed in the process. So I wanted to sort of reset and think about what can you do to make meaningful progress. And for that, we need to center women of color in inclusion, diversity and equity efforts.
0: Yeah, you go as far as to write, elevating women of color continues to be the most pressing issue in workplaces the world over.
1: I do, yeah. And that's because women of color are on track to become the largest majority of women um, in in the American society and workforce in a few decades. But when you look at it from a global context, in the global majority, we are the global majority. Yeah. So it is the most pressing issue.
0: In the book, you you start off by you talking about the why and the how of inclusion, right? You, you say that the why is a mm-hmm. largely accepted fact. For the most part, people get that including diverse backgrounds in the workplace is the right thing to do, and it's the profitable thing to do. But you say that the how isn't so mm-hmm. accepted or understood. Explain that. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and, I, and, and the reason I write that is because it would meet a lot of people with good intentions, especially, again, business leaders um, and, again, you know community leaders who would have – good intentions out there, they just didn't know how to really get started. Or often they would even feel like their good intentions were good enough to make an impact to change the way that especially women of color were experiencing the workplace or experiencing society. And so what I really wanted to do with this book is to say, listen, your intentions might be good and I'm really glad that they are good and that's not enough, right? To make meaningful progress and change You need to take action, you need to build self-awareness, and I really try and focus the book in sort of three pillars, the individual um, awareness and change, the organizational interventions and change, and then on a social and a societal and global level, how can you really operationalize inclusion?
0: Yeah. Um, I have lived so much of what you write about, Ruchika. So I personally enjoyed reading your words and, of course, learning more about the possible solutions to this ongoing issue. I've I've worked for companies where I've seen, with my own eyes, hiring processes that are just broken. And Mm. uh, the way people get promoted and pay equity, that's still a major issue. Also dealing with microaggressions constantly. So talk to employers who are listening to us right now. How can they make inclusion a priority in practice? Like, what are the initial steps that employers should be taking?
1: Yeah. Sasha, thanks for sharing your experience. And really, when I think about why I wrote this book, it's because I spent so long in my own corporate career feeling unseen and, Mm -hmm. you know, often gaslit. Like, is this really happening? Is it something in my mind? Are other people feeling this? I don't have the language for it. So it really means a lot to know that other women of color also can identify and hopefully feel seen, especially through some of the stories in this book. And so, you know, to really answer your question, what I hope when leaders read this book and you know, and do other work around this. You this is just a foundation. Is to learn and build awareness and educate themselves about what the experiences of women of color and other people who are marginalized and underestimated in the workplace. What's their experience really like? How can we build empathy for what those experiences are like? What what do we face? What do we go through? And so what I did is I tried to be really focused on curating stories that were less about egregious acts of bias, you know, things that would often result in a legal case, which is very important and necessary. Mm-hmm. But I think what sometimes business leaders, especially people who have found themselves represented, well-represented, dominating in society in the workplace, often forget or maybe don't even have awareness about is what are those more subtle acts of feeling like you're not welcome, like you don't belong, like facing bias on a daily basis, maybe being mistaken for someone else who is of the same race or ethnicity as you. Or, uh, you know, research shows that close to 50% of um, you know, Black and Latinx women scientists are often mistaken for the janitor or for an admin role, even when they're wearing lab coats. And so, my hope was that more leaders could learn to empathize with these stories, read them, really take a moment to to understand how this shows up, and then disrupt uh, many of these acts of exclusion and bias that we see in the workplace.
0: I want to talk also about the uh, the double burden, right? Sexism and racism. Mm-hmm.
1: It's faced Mm -hmm.
0: by women of color in the workplace as well. What steps do DEI committees need to take to address that?
1: Yeah, I mean, we need to center it in all diversity and inclusion efforts, without a doubt, because that intersection of race and gender, um, that women of color are, you know, we're, we're subject to a lot more stereotypes, a lot more racism, a lot more bias and exclusion than our white women counterparts, and we have to lean into that, right? To to borrow that expression of, you know, a lot of the advice I would get when I was in corporations was, oh, Ruchika, you're not progressing because you're not leaning in hard enough or you're not confident enough or you're not negotiating. Mm -hmm. And what I what I started seeing is no, what we need is for people with privilege and power and corporations, leaders within corporations to lean in to ensure that they're centering the, you know, the issues that we face that are often really, really egregious, and there's often no language to really address them until you center the issues that we face.
0: Yeah, I want to dig into that a little bit more, Ruchika. How are attitudes of passiveness and indifference dangerous to active inclusion? Talk more about what it means to truly be an ally and an anti-racist.
1: Yeah, it's very dangerous. Um, and And I actually think that Often and you know again, there's a couple of stories in the book where the the pain and the trauma of facing exclusion and bias as a woman of color often is not only at the hands of a perpetrator who's you know who's who's who, who's done some egregious act, but it's really in those little subtle moments where people around you either showed indifference or they said you know I'm sorry about this, I just don't want to engage mm-hmm. with it, and that that is really painful. So we cannot sit. On the sidelines, and I think that I really borrow from Dr. Kendi's scholarship, Ibram Kendi's scholarship on how to be an anti-racist, which is this is really an active practice, right? It's less about are you are you inclusive or are you not inclusive? It's more about are you practicing inclusion? in every given moment or are you not so we cannot sit on the sidelines if you see a colleague who is being disrespected if you see a colleague whose name is book but- is being butchered if you are in a meeting where women of color are constantly being talked over or discredited for their ideas that's when you need to step in you need to practice it in the moment and the reality is you're not going to get a cookie for it there's no magical there's no prize um, you know there's no reward yeah
0: There's no reward. Yeah, and this goes back to that individual level. You talked about the book being split into two parts. You focus on that organizational behaviors and the individual behaviors, this being one of the individual ones. And I wonder if you can speak to if there's power then in in just recognizing your own privilege.
1: Absolutely. And in fact, I document this very, very openly in the book. And The way I do it and the way that I came to this work is really understanding my own privilege, right? And one of the privileges I have as an Asian woman, as an Indian woman, as an immigrant woman is is people have certain ideas. And of course, we know the model minority myth is very, very harmful. But I, but I started noticing that people would think, okay, Ruchika's well, competent. She may not be a leader, but she's competent. And I started noticing that there are ways that there that I have privilege in a situation, especially compared with other women of color, uh, Black, Indigenous, and Latinx women. And so the research is very clear about how Asian women can use our power and privilege in situations. I talk about the privilege I have as someone who was able to graduate from two well-known colleges without Mm -hmm. ever incurring student debt. That's a huge privilege, and that made a huge impact on the careers I could choose, the organizations I could choose to leave where I didn't feel welcome and respected. And so I think that we, without really doing the deep work, understanding our privilege, understanding it may not be our fault that we have privilege, but it is our responsibility to use that privilege for good and to ensure that we're constantly working towards widening the table for others, super important for that.
0: This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. If you're just tuning in, we're talking with author Ruchika Tulshian about her new book, Inclusion on Purpose, an intersectional approach to creating a culture of belonging at work. At the end of your chapters, Ruchika, you offer what you call key reflection questions. Why?
1: Because this work is never done, right It's an active process. it's an iterative process. It's one where we really need to think about in our moment in our daily lives in the moments where we may have observed you know bad behavior or even under the table subtle acts of bias of exclusion we cannot um you know it's not a it's not a one and done it's not you read this book and suddenly you're changed well you know there's obviously as an author there's a part of me that hopes that but but the fact is this is very very much a daily practice of figuring out and understanding how these acts of exclusion show up in your life and how you can make change
0: what's your bridge framework walk us through that
1: yeah that's a thanks thanks for bringing that up. So the bridge framework is really a framework I developed for us to think about inclusion from a or to develop an inclusion mindset and essentially I talk about the various ways that we can cultivate an inclusion mindset if we really, um, you know, let go of defensiveness, we get comfortable, be comfortable with being uncomfortable. I mean, I I talk about, you know, in in a very sort of specific and key way, but I did want to highlight off the bridge framework, the one that I think is really important is D, and that's defensiveness doesn't help. And Mm -hmm. I think one of the key issues that we see around creating a more inclusive environment again, in the workplace and in society, is the defensiveness of, so you know, I'm a good person, I have good intentions, so I'm not going to engage in this conversation where I have been told, you know, perhaps I wasn't being inclusive in the moment, or my work culture isn't inclusive, or the way I operate as a manager, you know, created bias or, or um, you know, even even racism. And I think that we need to let go of that defensiveness. We need to be okay with being uncomfortable with it, and that's how we develop an inclusion mindset.
0: So that bridge framework, B-R-I-D-G-E, so B being be uncomfortable. R is reflect Mm -hmm. on what you don't know. Uh, Three, invite feedback. Four, as Ruchika mentioned, defensiveness doesn't help. Five uh, is uh, G, which is grow from your mistakes. And E is expect Mm -hmm. that change takes time. Uh, You talked earlier about that, that intentional empathy in the workplace. Can empathy, can that ever be problematic?
1: Empathy can be problematic in when it makes you think that you can speak for others, right? Just because you feel like you have put yourself in someone else's shoes, you have really tried to understand where they're coming from, um, that, that part of empathy can be really powerful. I think when empathy leads to the action of, well, now I can speak for other people uh, who have experiences unlike my own because I've made the effort to empathize with their experiences and so I'm going to speak for them, That's that's where empathy can get problematic. But I think often what I see, which is more of an issue, is the empathy gap. I think we are in a situation where a lot more leaders need empathy, where we need to cultivate empathy, where we need to display empathy, especially as we are sort of approaching what life could look like as we come back into in-office or in-person in environments after, you know, this devastating pandemic, which has lasted two years. Yeah. And so I, I, we do need more empathy as leaders. We need to make sure that empathy doesn't then, you know, that, that doesn't make us believe that we can then speak on behalf of others who have been marginalized.
0: Very important. Let's look ahead, Ruchika. You, you write about a future mm-hmm. powered by inclusive technology. What could that look like?
1: Ooh, it is a world where women and women of color are creators of technology, right, where we center our experiences and some of our concerns. One huge issue I saw and that I wrote about in the book is the rise of how technology and social media, on the one hand, can be really powerful to connect and build community and, on the other, without centering the voices and experiences of women of color Women of color are disproportionately harmed by technology that hasn't that hasn't considered or hasn't centered the reality that women of color face a lot more harassment on social media and other forms of technology. Um, that accessibility often isn't centered around these uh, techno- technological platforms and apps. And so, a po- you know, when I think of the power of technology to connect and to communicate and build community. I also think about an inclusive future that would center women of color and some of our concerns and, and our issues mm-hmm. as well um, so that you know there's opportunity to connect for all.
0: You dedicated inclusion on purpose to women of color everywhere. Um, I know you're also writing this book for those who don't identify as women of color mm-hmm. right so talk mm-hmm. to both groups what, what, what do you hope this book will do for women of color who are reading it and why should people who don't identify as that read the book? What do you hope that they gain?
1: Yeah I wrote this book really centering women of color because obviously we are not a monolith and it is an incomplete and imprecise categorization and yet there is so much power Um, in terms of social capital and in terms of our experience as a social and political identity to build coalition. And that's why I really centered women of color in this book. And I did not go deep into, you know, it's centered only around, for example, Indian women or Asian women, which is a a demographic I identify with, but really to build coalition for us as a social and political identity and demographic. So I believe as we build coalition, I really believe we can rise together. And I have seen the power of that in my own work and in my own research. So that is the reason why I dedicate the book um, to women of color. And Mm -hmm. that is where I have found the most amount of connection and the solace I needed, frankly, when I dealt with some really, really toxic and harmful situations in my own career and working life. I also, I really do hope that people who read this book who don't identify as women of color feel motivated and catalyzed to action, to awareness and action, because we can't do this work alone, right? We cannot solve these issues alone. A lot of the times, the sort of narrative around, as I mentioned earlier, the narrative of lean in, that, oh, we would be able to get ahead if we just tried harder and we worked harder, the myth of meritocracy still runs rampant, and it is so harmful. So my hope is when people who don't identify as women of color, when they read this book, they also see how important their role is in helping creating a more inclusive world and workplace for all.
0: That was author Ruchika Tolshean. Inclusion on Purpose is available now. Go check it out. Thank you for talking with us. Want more context on the top issues of the day? Find the podcast, WBEZ's Reset, wherever you listen.